Welcome everyone to the Change Starts Here podcast. I'm your host, Dustin Odom. And today's guest is someone who has made an incredible impact on my career. Um, it's someone that I have, when we started this podcast, it was one of my first names of people that I just really wanted to spend an hour with. And it was better than I could have even imagined. And so uh, because I love this man and his work so much, I'm just gonna read his biography just as I, I may go off on tangents. And so to help me go off and not go off on tangents, I'm just gonna say, uh, Jeffrey Canada is one of the most amazing people I've got a chance to meet, especially in the world of education. He's worked at the Harlem Children's Zone for over 30 years, and he's renowned around the world for his pioneering work helping children and families in Harlem as a thought leader and passionate advocate for education reform. From 1990 to 2014, Mr. Canada served as the President and Chief Executive Officer for Harlem Children's Zone, which the New York Times called one of the most ambitious social policy experience, uh, experiments of our time. Mr. Canada was named 2011 Time Most 100 Time 100 list of most influential people in the world, and 2014 as one of Fortune's 50 greatest leaders in the world. Uh, the fact that we got him on the podcast is still blowing my mind. This was a great conversation. We dove into his mission and passion. We spent a lot. We spent some time in Harlem Children's Zone, but we spent most of the time talking about his reflections on life, leadership, um, and even we talked about what's what kind of music does he listen to? It's, it's a lot of fun. Uh, so we talked about his mission and passion. Uh, we, we talked about advice for people and their career to jump into the deep end of the pool, as he calls it. Um, some assumptions that he made uh, building Harlem Children's Row that kind of got rocked over time. Uh, we talked about education reform, and then we dove a little bit into what are his habits and disciplines that have been that have helped him be successful. What does he read? What are books that he's interested in, and what does he read on a daily basis? Again, what what uh, is the music that he likes? And at the end, uh, he just gives some really sound advice for leading in the digital age. Um, I still am on a high from this conversation. You're going to love it. Jeffrey Canada uh, is just a really thoughtful, passionate person, and you're going to feel that the entire time. Thanks for joining us. Uh, enjoy this conversation. Mr. Canada, I'm going to say Jeffrey. I don't know what you want me to call yeah, you. I'm Jeffrey. Like, I'm I, Jeffrey. I, I know you are. I'm like, I have looked up to you for so long. It's an honor to have you here. Um, thanks for making time. Uh, the first question that we ask every guest is, who are you and what do you love about what you do? Jeffrey Canada, founder of the Harlem Children's Zone. Uh, I have always been passionate about uh, trying to bring the American dream to children uh, who grow up in places that that dream seems to have disappeared. Uh, and I've always been amazed that they pay me money to do what I would do for free. I, I just, I started on this mission and people don't believe it. When I was a kid, uh, 13, 14, 15, uh, and uh, I've never regretted uh, a moment of my experience uh, doing this work. When you say you started on this mission, and I, uh, and kind of our pre-conversation before this, I was telling you things that happened in my life that yeah. kind of developed my why for the work that I've done in my life. Um, what happened during 13, 14, 15 to give you clarity of the work you need to do with your life? Well, you know, I grew up in the South Bronx uh, in a time where it was the backdrop of 
uh, urban decay when you were running for president. So if you were Jimmy Carter, you came to the South Bronx to take a picture of the abandoned houses and uh, the rubble in the street. Uh, that was the neighborhood I grew up in. Um, I was a lucky kid because my mother so believed she single mom raising four boys by herself. Father left us when we were, I was maybe, I think about three, maybe four. Uh, she invested in something which was so hugely expensive. Uh, most of your uh, listeners and viewers won't know what a, a set of encyclopedias are, but she got <laughs> us a set of encyclopedias, which at that time, contained all of the written information in the world between A and Z. Yeah. Uh, and I went through those books and learned that the rest of the world did not look like the South Bronx. Mm -hmm. That people were growing up where they were safe, where they didn't have rodents, where, where there wasn't a sense of decay and despair, where the heat worked and you could get hot water uh, and you didn't have to put plastic over your windows to try and keep out the air. And, and it struck me, how do I get from here in the South Bronx to there, which was some uh, you know, romanticized vision of what life would be. Again, you have to be my age to, these won't mean anything to folks to, to, to grow up in a place like Leave it to Beaver or Ozzie and Harriet. These are old TV shows, white people growing up in the suburbs. Uh, the, the experience that I was having, uh, honestly, uh, I knew we weren't going to make it out of here. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I had three brothers only, two of them made it out with me. My wife, uh, had three brothers and sisters, none of them made it to 35. Um, I knew the conditions and, and we, were, we were innocent children. We, we hadn't done anything. I don't care what people think about left or right. We were just kids who were trying to figure out uh, how we were going to uh, sort of make it through the third grade or through the fifth grade or get to summertime or what we were going to get for Christmas. And all the while I was thinking, yeah, but this thing is not going to end well. Uh, and why is that in America? And so that's what that's what shaped my thinking. If, if you look from the moment I graduated high school and went into college and then went to graduate school, all I tried to learn about is how do you fix this in places like the South Bronx. And that, that's incredibly inspiring. I, I, I think, I mean, I, I didn't realize it was that far. I knew you had some learnings. I know your passion's always been there. I didn't realize it was, it goes that deep for you. Um, was there pressure from your mom or other influential people in your life to uh, pursue quote unquote, the American dream, just get out and kind of take care of yourself? It's fascinating. My, my mother knew what I wanted to do. And uh, what she was concerned about is uh, my connection with people. I was always able to connect with people and, and people always liked me and wanted to help me. And she said to me, which scared the heck out of me. She said to me one day, Jeff, I think you have a particular talent. And if you use this talent for evil, I will disown you. Now, she told me that when I was about 14, 
but she was deadly serious. I was like, you're going to disarm? What, what, what is it that I could do? And, and you know, she was thinking that uh, you could uh, decide that, you know, you're going to spend your life uh, selling something that destroys people or doing things that manipulate people uh, and for profit and for self-gain. And if that's what you use this talent for, uh, you know, I don't know that she would have disowned me. By the way, I didn't doubt her at the moment. I mean, now that I'm grown, I probably do. So, so she encouraged me to go forward. But I'll, I'll tell you an interesting thing that, that happened, Dustin, which, which uh, when I was in college, right? So I'm at Bowdoin College up in Maine. I'm a, a senior and I take two classes in pure science. I'm a psych major with a, a sociology minor. I took a pharmacology class and a physiology class as a senior. And pharmacology I took because heroin was destroying the inner cities. In the, this, I'm in school now, this is 1974. Uh, and I was trying to understand what was it about sort of the use of drugs and other things and physiology I took because I, I believe there was a connection between your mind and your body and your intellect in a way that if you did certain things to your body, it could impact the way you think, because I'm looking for the answers for, for how we're going to solve this problem. And the, uh, the head of the biology department came in and said to me, Jeff, I just got your grades back and you got two A's in pure science. And he says, do you know what this means? I said, no, what does it mean? He says, it means you're smart. <laughs> and I said, well, yeah, I mean, no, he said, no, no, but you're really smart. You're like, I could be a doctor smart. Mm. And uh, I said, well, he said, no, no, I want you to go to med school because you want to be a teacher and an educator. And why would you waste that intellect in that field? I said, no, because that's really what I want to do. Uh, and he said, no, 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 you, you don't understand. You're really smart. You don't have to do that. I said, no, but that's what I really want to do. He brought in the head of the chemistry department and they tag teamed me saying, you don't understand the pay differential. You don't understand the prestige when you tell people you're a doctor versus a teacher, what that's going to mean. And they convinced me that I, I decided they were going to give me a full scholarship. Tuition, room, board, books, spending money. I had to take an extra semester of science because I hadn't done all of the basic biology and chemistry I needed to do. Uh, and I was going to get a full ride through medical school. And right before I signed the document, I realized I didn't want to be a doctor. I didn't want to spend my life around sick people. That's not, it's not like I don't like sick people, but I don't really want to spend time with them. But the pressure they put on me, honestly, to leave the profession, and it's been to me one of the problems with uh, the work we're doing. People think you don't have to be the best and the brightest to come in and do this work. People demean the work such that almost it's an excuse. Well, how did you end up in education or why would you go there? So I, I believe, and I, I've said to other young people growing up, this was my passion. It wasn't because I didn't have other choices in my life. I chose this work uh, and I chose it against some folks who uh, sort of thought, uh, you know, in quotes, you could do better. You could have a better career, more prestigious career doing something else. So did that strengthen your resolve when that happened? Once you realized that, you're like, oh man, these folks think I'm throwing my life away by pursuing this passion. Did that just give you this crazy fire to just run full steam ahead? 
the one thing the one thing I thought and I worried about was was I was I going to be able to get the credibility, right? Being an educator, yeah. or should I try and become a lawyer or a doctor? And would that give me more credibility because I knew to do what I wanted to do, I was going to have to go out and convince people to support the work. Uh, people who didn't believe these kids could learn, and you know that you could tackle these kind of issues. And so I, I wondered about that, and you know, I I never sort of saw a trajectory where I would go from where I started teaching in Boston to sort of creating the Harlem Children's Zone. Uh, that wasn't in my consciousness. Uh, so today it looked like, well, yeah, you could do it from an educator perspective. At that point, it was highly unlikely. And I thought I was going to uh, probably save as many kids as I could touch, which wasn't going to be that many. But I thought if I could just save a few hundred in a career, I would be happy. I think, I mean, I, I, one of the reasons I got into education, especially teaching urban education, uh, was to fix the broken system. There's so many talented kids that just didn't have the opportunity to shine. And so I wanted to fix that broken system. And I think um, what, what I felt is that to do that, just like you said, could I really be on the inside and fix it? Or did I need to just like look at the world and go into business? I studied finance. Should I have gone that route? How, how, what advice do you have for folks who are kind of early on in their career or even I guess anywhere in the career, they could switch that to, to just jump into the deep end and pursue education and join the fight and, or stay in the fight? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because I think one of the things we've seen happen is uh, since folks went on remote, they weren't going in the office, they got off the sort of the rat, you know, uh, uh, race kind of thing. And, you know, I got to go in, I'm, I'm getting in the office every day by 730, I'm staying till 10 o'clock at night. And it stopped. And then people said, I'm never going back to do that again. I actually found something else I want to do with my life. Uh, and I will, I will tell folks, they should take it from me. Life is short. Uh, and you get to be 69 and you realize you've lived most of your life already. And you say, how much of that time did I spend doing something I really cared about? Or how much of it did I spend trying to make a bunch of money? Or how much of it did I spend trying to impress, you know, folks or my parents, my grandparents, my spouse or other folks, but it really wasn't what I wanted to do myself. Uh, it is it is hard. And, and I've tried... I'm trying not to push my sort of um, career goals on my children uh, and other folks that, you know, why don't you go out and you get to be this? And I, I can show everybody what a great parent I am if you actually end up at this school or that university, because we get caught up in that kind of stuff and we think it's real. Uh, and I think the older you get in life, uh, the more you realize if you're blessed to live to be uh, you know, in your 60s, in your 70s, in your 80s. That's not what's real. What's real is what you really cared about. Uh, how much good you've done with your in your life. How many times have you gone out of your way to show somebody that you love them or that you care about them or, or that you're willing to spend the time? The one thing that, that we can't buy anymore of to spend the time uh, with them doing something that's important. So I, I've become more philosophical about this one. In the early part of my career, 
I didn't spend time with my my first kids, and I've got kids, and you know, from fifty down to to forty five. I was just on that thing, passionate, committed, and I said, yeah, I wish I could spend time with you, but you know what? I got to do this thing. It's funny you say, do you regret it? Yes, I do. Do I think I could have gotten here otherwise? No, I don't. Um, the the one gift my wife and I gave ourselves, we had a kid late in life. And I stopped and I spent as much time as I could. Uh, and boy, I will tell you, uh, I, I know what I'm gonna be thinking about uh, when I close my eyes for the last time. Uh, and it's not gonna be all those long hours. It's gonna be that I really got to spend some time uh, watching and participating in the full life experience of uh, one of my children. I wasn't there for the other ones. And it's so, you know, it's, it's funny, you just get to a place you're looking at, how did I spend my time? I don't regret what I, what I have tried to do for others. Uh, but I do regret to some degree that uh, there were times when I was making personal sacrifices in my own family uh, that, uh, you know what, I think I could have had a better balance. So to that point, so I, I appreciate the reflection because um, so many people just stay in the race and they don't ever slow down to listen, get other advice from folks who are reflecting back or until it's too late. Um, one of the things that I, I know you did, because I've had friends work with you and around you um, that we could talk about later, uh, is you have high expectations in the culture you built. Um, people worked hard and you, you were, you were gracious. Cause I've, I've heard you say this a few times. You were gracious in the sense of you were very clear. If you're going to join this work, it's all encompassing. And if I only get you for a month, a year, two years, five years, whatever, or I get a long time we're in, is there any kind of adjustment amendment you would make with this reflection that you're having now? It's, 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 that's such a great question because uh, it, it forces me to, to gain some perspective. And, and this is what, this is how I, how I honestly think about it. If you're trying to do something that maybe has never been done before, uh, you're going to end up uh, having to pay a price. And the question is, what's the price? And is it worth it in the end? Uh, to build the Harlem Children's Zone, um, folks who came with me, I told them, and I would say, people would think I was kidding. I'd say, no, this is not for everybody. And hell yeah, no, people come out, oh, Jeff, I'd love to work for you. I say, no, no, you really don't want to work for me, for real, no, because yeah. I'm on a mission, <laughs> I'm on a mission, and I don't want you to feel abused. i like, why is this guy like, you know, it's Friday night, and he expects me to be there Saturday, and what's going, that I gave everybody clear warning the closer you got to me, the more you were going to be caught up in this cycle. And, and the, the thing that allowed me to do this was, there was a group of us when I went to school in the 70s, uh, George Caldoun, Rasuli Lewis, uh, who joined me in this work. And they each came from the activist tradition uh, where they were prepared to commit their lives to change. In uh, the old tradition of, you know, uh, what folks do when they uh, decide they're going to just become full-time activists, whether you're fighting for women's rights or gay rights or any that's what you're going to do. They joined me as part of my team, and they were as driven as I was. So now you had, now it's even worse, because you had other people there saying, yes, aren't you coming in on Saturday? How are we going to get this thing done? 
the thing, so the thing I tried not to do was to burn people out so they, they didn't want to stay in the work, that they got so overwhelmed by it. Uh, and I would tell folks, uh, whether you can serve for a year or five years or 10 years, uh, we're going to appreciate that. But we're trying to do something that I think is historic. And my understanding is everyone who's done that has paid a price. Mm -hmm. And we're going to have to pay a price uh, because the work is that serious. So I know that sounds contradictory. I'm saying, boy, I wish I spent more time with my kids. And I, but at the same time, I'm saying sometimes, you know, would, would I have felt this way if I was selling detergent? And, yep. you know, that I had a, I, I don't think I could say the same thing. Uh, I, I left, uh, we do a peace march every year. It's named after Rasul Lewis, who passed away. He was my age and helped build the Harlem Children's Home. And we've been marching to try and keep kids safe in Harlem. This is our 27th year in a row we've done this march. And I was saying to the folks, because we have to do it virtually, who have been here for Some people grew up in the organization. They're still here. Uh, I said, you know what? We tried to save them all to keep our kids from being slaughtered. And we didn't save them all. We, we lost some. But I said we saved hundreds. Uh, and uh, that's why we ended up doing what we're doing. And I feel that way about the thousands. Uh, we saved thousands. Uh, and it took this to do it. Uh, I don't regret that, uh, even as I, I sort of wished we could have done it without putting in some of the hours. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I think some people say that ah, that doesn't jive. I think what I hear from you is, again, you've been, you felt called to go after this mission since an early age. So that was always a part of who you are and what you were. I think that just means there's some nuance to maybe I could have figured out some things here and there. It's not completely checking the track you were going down. It's just trying to find a little bit more of that nuance, I guess. Yeah. No, I, I think, look, it, it, it's complicated. I, I think all of us are thinking about this issue. Yeah. Uh, I'm fairly clear, right? I made choices early on in my career. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I, I think now at my age, since I know the end of the story, I could have figured out maybe I didn't have to do this to get to the end. At that point, uh, you know, Paul Tuff wrote this book, Whatever It Takes. That was our philosophy. We got to do whatever it takes to save these kids uh, because then we'll figure out what works and other people can do it more efficiently, more effectively, uh, with less wear and tear. But right now we're at that stage where we just got to make sure it gets done. Uh, and, uh, you know, I didn't know any better then. So I did what I felt like I needed to do. Uh, it's easier to do it in hindsight, uh, but uh, I didn't have that privilege. That's all right. Uh, we, we thank you for the sacrifice. I'm sure there's plenty of folks that do. Uh, as you think, you know, since you're in a reflective state right now, what what assumptions when you built the Harlem Children's Zone did you have about these are the three things that if we do this well, it's going to lead to the outcomes that I'm looking for. And what, you know, as you say, those are the assumptions you had. What were the ones that kind of got rocked in your new learnings? Yeah, well, one, one of, one of uh, my uh, early assumptions was that we needed to really tackle this employment issue in our community, right? Because uh, there were lots of uh, folks, single moms and others who just weren't 
employed, they weren't able to make enough money, you had all of these challenges. So we created an employment center, which I love this employment center, it was a great theory, a great plan. It was one of the biggest failures of anything I had done. And it wasn't that I had diagnosed the problem wrong, right? It was when people came into our employment center, they didn't need the 12 weeks of training we were going to provide so that they had a set of skills and technology and how to do Excel and something. They need a job tomorrow. If they didn't get a job tomorrow, they were like going to lose something and I couldn't get them a job tomorrow. They didn't have the skill. So I was sitting here and I kept running into this problem. And I said, you know what? As much as I love this program, uh, it's not working. The data doesn't suggest that we actually have a handle on this. And so we did a couple of other things. We started the earned income tax credit to make sure we do your taxes. You in Harlem, you in the zone, we'll do your taxes the long form for free so you can claim the earned income tax credit. I'm sure they're not happy at H&R Block, which was doing the short form, uh, but we were saying, and we've brought literally uh, more than $100 million into our community uh, by helping folks figure out how to claim that tax credit. Uh, and so we said, great idea, didn't work. Uh, not, not as good idea, because you have to have a job to claim that, but, we, but you have to be below a certain wage requirement. Uh, so that part, I think, worked out uh, well for us. Uh, the other sort of serious, this was one of my biggest mistakes I, I made. So when we started out with charter school, uh, we had an option for opening up the school uh, that uh, June, which would start us in September, or we could wait a year. And I was like, no, we got to open up this June. Now, the problem was we didn't get our charter, right? until uh, April. So then I'm looking for a superintendent uh, through May into June. Then I'm Retired. looking for teachers. <laughs> In June, I'm looking for teachers. This is like, what was I thinking? Who is looking for a job if you're a teacher in July? I mean, it is. it does happen. I'm not saying the teachers who may be looking for a job now that the, the best teachers are looking for jobs early in the academic year where they're thinking about switching. I loaded our schools with folks who just weren't able to do the job. Mm -hmm. And we tried to train and retrain and do all of this stuff to fix this problem. And the original problem was I should have waited and gave myself time to structure this uh, deal. Uh, and for me, I felt like we couldn't wait. It was an emergency, it was a crisis. We had to deal with it right now. But you know what? We almost had to shut the school down because uh, we weren't doing well. The scores weren't good. And the last thing we wanted needed was another lousy school. Uh, and guess who was sort of running that one? It was me. Uh, and so we had to totally readjust, uh, take a year to rework. We didn't start the high school because we, the middle school wasn't strong. I promised a bunch of kids if they could go into our high school that year, I had to tell them no. It was the worst career day of my life. It really was. I was in tears that whole day telling kids and families who trusted me, you're going to have to go to another high school because you can't come to mine because we're not opening it. We opened it the next year. I still feel terrible about it today. Uh, I tell folks who are interested in this work, this is not something you should ever rush. 
do it right the first time because it starts the culture right. It allows you actually to have a higher chance of success. We talk a lot about in our organization, go slow to go fast. Yeah. Um, and so that, that really resonates. I, I think uh, it was funny. So my wife is the chief of staff and former talent director at KIPP St. Louis. Uh, and that's what they've noticed is that your most talented folks, you've got to hire early in the cycle. And so uh, that's a tough learning. I will say, I, I think I heard, you know, I'm preparing to talk to you. I've listened to a bunch of different podcasts and read your book. I, I feel like there's one, there's one interview about uh, when this failure happened at your most vulnerable time that you just described, you actually invited Paul Tuff, who was, at, I guess, at the New York Times then, to come in and like cover it. Like that, that seems a little sadistic to me. I love it now looking back at the strategy, but I promise you, without that story, I would have never had the maturity to be like, you know what, let's bring a writer in here to cover this failure and this apology I'm about to have to go down. You know, it, it's funny because uh, it's hard It's hard for me to explain to folks how devastated I was. This was the biggest failure in my life. There was a whole group of kids and families who trusted me, who I was about to go down that night. They didn't know why they were coming to a meeting. Yep. They, all of their kids were supposed to go to high school. They thought it was going to be ours. I was going to have to tell them, not only... You're not going to my high school and it's late to get into any high school right now. So that's going to be a struggle. I was crying. I was all day. I just was in an emotional wreck. Uh, and the reason I called Paul, who I knew was writing a book. Uh, and the last thing I wanted for anybody was to really come in and know about this. But this is what I thought. This work is so hard. One day... We're going to be successful. I believe that. People were going to look in and say, yeah, that was easy for you, right? Because you had it all figured out and you actually didn't suffer any of these sort of kind of uh, soul. This was, this was at my very soul, uh, I was suffering uh, and feeling like I failed these kids. Uh, and uh, I thought that for people who care about doing tough things, we have to learn how to live with losing, with failure, uh, but not to let that define uh, your efforts. Uh, and uh, this to me was gonna be, I hoped, my seminal moment, I hope it wasn't gonna become a perennial moment, right? That, that, that we were gonna go and I was gonna suffer and I suffered that whole time. And I suffered for weeks after that, just trying to get my kids into schools and writing letters and calling principals, asking them to accept my students. Uh, and uh, I thought that, and, and now, so, you know, you fast forward now, we've eliminated the achievement gap with our kids. Folks, oh yeah, yeah, oh yeah. I go around it like, oh yeah, Jeff, but, but you had this and you had that. And I was like, no, you need to read, you need to read where I was uh, in this journey for real, uh, to recognize that uh, lots of folks, that would have stopped them. Uh, and a part of, I think, you know, and there are other people who have stories about failure, whether you're talking about Steve Jobs or other folks, and you know, yeah. uh, in our business, uh, you don't, failure usually defines the end of that story, right? It was like, oh yeah, they were doing good, and then they failed, and that was it. 
Uh, here, I wanted to say, like in other businesses, failure could help you figure out uh, what you need to do differently to be successful. Uh, and at this point in our business, if you're, going to be, if you're going to be in this business, you are going to fail. I don't care where you are. If you're going to be trying to work in what I call the deep end of the pool, uh, where people drown, if you're going to go in that area, you're going to have to learn how to deal with failure. And the question is, in lots of places, which I know you know, people accept that as the state of things. School's been failing 15, oh yeah, but you know what? I'm in St. Louis, so what do you expect? Or, you know, yeah, this is Bed-Stuy, come on. What, what, right, you just accept that as the, the, the sort of the way things are. Uh, those of us who go in and say, no, it doesn't have to be like that. You have to deal with the fact that, yeah, you may try really, really hard, which we did. <laughs> Can I tell you how hard we tried? And we failed spectacularly, right? And then the question is, can you learn from that uh, and get back in the game uh, and uh, become successful, which is what I think we did. So I, I think, you know, as I, I think about some people who are, you know, whether you're a nonprofit leader, even a business leader listening to this podcast, but a, definitely a school leader and a district leader, uh, it sounds like we, we've got to build cultures that embrace failure. But just like you said, the, the work within education Failure has real consequences and it feels really weighty. How do you build or what are some of the keys to building a culture where you embrace failure while knowing that failure is scary, really scary? That's a great question because uh, I, I was in a city talking to that superintendent of schools and tough, tough system, new person in there. And I was saying that if you don't build a support group among folks who have power, who will allow you to have the time uh, to work through a failure. And one of the biggest challenges in, in schools is you end up not being able to change something in two years, you're out of there. They got the new person in, right? The new person has an idea that goes on for three years. That person's out. You got a new person in with new eyes. And by then, all the people underneath them are rolling their eyes when the new person comes in with the new plan, right? It's like, oh, here comes another one. Oh, let's see what this genius has to say. <laughs> and, and, and if you can't figure out how, and, and this is why I say, you need five years. You need five years uh, because you're going to have failure in those first couple of years and you're going to have to have the time to work that. You will not get five years if you are at the political whims of powers that be, that actively are able to remove you and not allow you to have the opportunity to correct your failures. Uh, and that's what we've had in education. Uh, you come in with big ideas, everybody takes the job, I don't care where you are. You're in Cleveland, you're in Cincinnati, I don't care. You go in, they say, you know the data, your data's bad, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can fix this, I got a plan, right? And then they ask you, so how long is your plan going to take? And you think about how long the contract is you have. I have a two-year contract. I got to tell them I can do this in two years. Otherwise, I think that's where you messed up my idea. No, I'm going to need five years because I'm going to try some stuff. It ain't going to work. I'm going to correct it. I'm going to get better every year. And you'll be able to chart that progress, right? And it allows folks to know that this is not a short-term plan because half the people are waiting you out, right? Why should I go through this? This guy's not going to be here in two more years. And I got, 
So this system has been designed like this from the very top. You look at the turnover and superintendents and other things. We don't give folks enough time and people don't realize you have to, you have to figure out who the power systems are and convince them that the strategy is not a two-year strategy, that you've got a strategy and in that strategy is self-correction. And, and what they can hold you accountable to is being honest about failure, transparent about what didn't work, and then clear about what you're gonna to do to correct those failures. And the time frame it's gonna to take to get that done. Uh, I think each one of these is tough. Being transparent about failure is sort of giving the naysayers an opportunity to pile on and say, I told you she couldn't do it or he couldn't do it. Uh, and then getting enough time to correct those failures and having the plan in place is part of the challenge, I think, in this work. Uh, so now, here's my theory. If in the end, you get the time and you don't deliver, then I think uh, folks have to make the decisions, right? Sorry. You, you couldn't do it for this group of kids and make you a bad person, but you can't do it. Uh, but we make people overpromise, they underdeliver, and then we get rid of them. I want to see a real plan, right? If you've got a culture in a school, that is not going to turn around in a year. And until you begin to turn that culture around, you're not going to be able to start moving those indicators. So you got to come up with me with a real plan that I begin to be able to measure where you are on that journey you're taking uh, with this institution. Uh, and I, I think that's the same for any of these businesses that, that you're trying to turn around, uh, that you have to set, uh, first you have to diagnose the problem and you have to have a real realistic set of strategies about not just what you're gonna do, but how long it's gonna take you to do it uh, if you're gonna be successful. This is the one thing I will tell you. In certain businesses, you can have a fairly long-term uh, failure rate, which I'll say um, that you're not profitable. If folks see a vision, that profitability will at some point be outside. So you look at the, the stories of Amazon and other places that just for years, they didn't produce a profit, but folks believed, right? Now those, those folks are now geniuses. If you look at what happened with the stock price, but folks believed the vision was powerful enough. So we're willing to make this investment and sort of uh, you building this institution until we often don't get those kinds of investors in education and social service that see the vision, understand you're gonna have, I'm sure they, they were saying on a regular basis, uh, you know, uh, what's your plan? I got your numbers for this quarter, what's your plan? How are you gonna go? What does that mean? Uh, and then it was whether or not folks had enough faith in you that they will support you through these times. Uh, and, uh, you know, at some point you got to turn a profit. I'll say that. Uh, and in our business, is, it's the same thing. But let's not expect you to turn that within the first year or two of trying to do something extraordinary. Uh, because that is no, there's no evidence in history that that's the way any of this stuff goes. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, you could tell from what we talked about earlier, I, I really enjoy college basketball. And I think about, you know, the evolution, like so many of the great coaches, like take coach K who's retiring. Yeah. If he was only given two or three years, yeah. he, he could have been fired. Like today he That's says right. I would have been fired and we would right. not have coach K like that, yeah. that, that to me is baffling. And I don't know how we get our society back to it, but it's encouraging for you to say like, you know, honestly, there's no silver bullet to this, but 
we've got to have time. You've got to embrace failure, but own fixing those things. Like failure is not a place you're going to live, but you're going to make mistakes as you're trying to get to the outcomes that you want. Right. Yep. And I, and I think in education is one of the few places that failure can be accepted as a norm, right? In certain, in certain communities, in certain places, which is just so frustrating to me because every other business would have gone out of business, right? Because after a while you have to turn a profit and you can't pay. Part of the biggest challenge I think education reformers have faced is the status quo, which wants to insist that you really, if you really can't change these systems so poor kids can make it. And part of what has happened in our business is it runs people out. Yep. That, that in the end, right? Because when, when, when you struggle and you fail, uh, people can publicly point to it and say, yeah, you thought you were so good. Look what happened when you did this. Uh, that a lot of folks from that experience, they decide uh, to back away. And that's why the folks who have stuck through this uh, the, you know, the KIPs and Achievement First. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, there, there are traditional public schools that the same thing has happened. You've seen people turn around these places. Uh, I, I really think uh, that they are, are pretty extraordinary uh, in their leadership abilities. Yeah, one of the words you just used was reformer. And, you know, if you asked me before this, like if anybody came up on the street and said, who, who are the uh, top education reformers? Your name would be near the top of my list, as I'm sure it's on the top of many lists. When and when do you like being considered a reformer and when does it make you cringe or does it ever make you cringe? Yeah, well, well so this is, this is uh, one of the things I've been saying to folks. Because of COVID, I'm liable to leave my chosen profession with things being worse than when I started. Mm. That's not reform, right? <laughs> that's like that's like real failure uh, for real. Uh, and so I have been ringing the bell. I've been telling folks, break the glass, pull the alarm. This moment right now in our history, what's going on, uh, just a piece, I don't know if it was in the, the Times or the, the Journal or, or, the, or the Washington Post, they looked at the latest scores and said, surprise, surprise, most American kids suffered during COVID in terms of academic um, outcomes, measurements. Poor kids and vulnerable kids suffered an awful lot more. And the kids who were already behind suffered even worse. Uh, this is a disaster. Uh, and my challenge to the country right now is are we prepared to call this what it is? This is a disaster. This, we're gonna deal with the impacts of this for the next 20 years. This whole generation of kids, we've never seen a whole generation go through something like this. From pre-K right through kids who are in college, we have undermined the most vulnerable kids platform and it's going to impact them uh, for the rest of their academic career unless we do something extraordinary uh, as Americans. Probably shouldn't frame it this way because I don't, I don't, I don't wanna fall into some xenophobic kind of thing. But what I've said is, if you think of who our biggest competitor is uh, for uh, workers, for intellect, 
uh, and for commerce, it is China. How many weeks were the Chinese kids out of school this last year? Um, I don't know, not much, right? <laughs> not much, <Yeah. laughs> a month, yeah. not much. Uh, they've gained a generational advantage over us. Uh, so their fourth graders had a real fourth grade. Our fourth graders had some makeup of third grade. We as a nation need to really think this through seriously uh, and uh, think about the next five to seven years it's going to take for us to make sure that these children, these kids who've been involved in this uh, challenging year that's now going into year two, by the way, uh, that we uh, spend the time and intellectual firepower to come up with a strategy to solve this. I, I see this somewhat like sort of the infrastructure issue. Yeah, you know, don't build, let those bridges keep going. You're gonna end up with a problem. Yes, we put a bunch of money there, but did we spend the time thinking through a strategy for real of how we're gonna move this generation? So uh, I'm concerned. And so, I mean, you asked me this question about reformer. Uh, I, I don't feel like a reformer. Uh, I, I feel like, uh, you know, the, the person who uh, thought, uh, when they left, they were going to win the war. Now they're kind of old and they're like, no, not only are we winning the war, we need to get the old guys back uh, because we might really lose this whole thing. That's what I feel like like I am right now. Uh, we, we need to come up. What I was, what I was designing against, this, that's not this. This yeah. is something new. It includes the old stuff, but it's something new on top of it. Is there anything that uh, the Harlem Children's Zone is doing right now that you think is innovative for that? Or is it, are you guys still in the phase of like, we got to get our best minds and figure this out right now? So what, what we did, which I thought was pretty uh, sort of unique, we knew, we knew that we were going to end up going remote before the schools all announced it because we have been tracking internally, we had just been looking at the news and everything, and we knew this thing was going to shut stuff down. So we set up beforehand, we found all of our kids who didn't have devices. We got them devices. We found all of our kids who didn't have internet connection, and we got them hotspots before they were all sold out. Uh, and then we told our teachers, you're going to design a way to teach your class live, your entire class, every day. So when everybody else are having kids only with a live instructor for an hour or a bunch of assignments, but no, uh, you know, our school day started before COVID at eight and ended at four with a live and, and professional. Today, during COVID, they started at eight, they ended at four. One of the things they did in New York City, it didn't make, it does make sense to me because I understand why they couldn't do it, but we could do it. If you were remote, I had Ms. Brown as my teacher in the fourth grade and I went remote, I didn't have Ms. Brown anymore. I had a new teacher. Ms. Brown was teaching the kids who showed up in the classroom, but she wasn't teaching me. If you were at Promise Academy, our school, if you had Ms. Brown in the fourth grade, Ms. Brown was teaching her class live and there was a camera following her all over her classroom so everybody remote was being instructed by Ms. Brown. 
uh, and she could see who was doing what, when, and which cameras were on and which were not, and kids who were, were sleeping when they should be awake because they weren't in class. I mean, that piece of it, was it great? No, but, but do we think it was better than everybody else? Yes, right? We wouldn't trade that for live instruction, but this idea that we were gonna have, you know, kids not learning from their regular teachers, kids only having an hour of live instruction and the rest, we, we think that was horrible for children. Uh, and there's no way, reason for us to go back to that. I know we've only got a couple minutes left. I've got a couple of quick personal questions and then I'm gonna uh, end up with the same question we end every podcast with. Um, what, what are a few habits or disciplines that you have or have had in your life throughout your career that you think are critical to you being able to have the energy and focus and um, uh, determination that you need to be successful every day? Interesting, a lot, a lot of folks who know me don't, don't know. I've been, uh, I was, I, I'm retired. I was a martial arts instructor for about 25 years uh, and I taught Taekwondo. Uh, and the thing I used to say to people, they say, why do you love Taekwondo? Because the moment I went and began to put on my gi and began to think about the uh, forms and the techniques and the other things, I, I could have cared less about what my boss had said. It just wasn't in my consciousness. I became a totally different person. So absorbed. I think people talk about golf and other things. What gets your mind so off of something that you're able to refresh? And it was the physical exercise, but it was also the, the mental space I went into and the emotional space I went into when I was doing, and that became a regular part of my life. And, and here's the interesting thing. Because I taught it, I had to show up. If I was taking a class, I didn't have to show up. I could say, I'm not going Wednesday. But my students were waiting, so for 25 years, I had this discipline uh, twice a year uh, that, I mean, twice a week, I was going to be the martial arts instructor and working out and teaching and totally absorbed in this. Uh, and that world is it's all consuming when you're in it, right? Because you don't want to sort of miss stuff. Everybody's watching you. And there's a whole group of us around the country who do it and, and were involved. What, to me, I, I think probably this is obvious, but, but I'll, I'll state the obvious. If there's not a way for you to find your own ability to wipe the slate clean, we think that happens when you sleep at night, dreaming helps wipe the slate clean so your brain gets a chance to refresh. My classes wipe the slate clean for me. When I left those classes, I still wasn't thinking about work. I was thinking about, oh, I shouldn't have done that, or so-and-so had a problem with this. Life. And that kind of was a pressure valve release uh, that allowed me to go for decades, uh, feeling like I kept, now it's also healthy, right? Uh, and physically it keeps your body limber and stretched and all that other, this yoga, it, it's all the good stuff that people do that, that involves exercise and health. Uh, and uh, so that to me uh, is something I tell folks. Uh, if you care about being in this for the long haul, you're going to have to take care of your physical and spiritual self uh, because they will more likely give out before your intellect does. Uh, and I've seen people with broken spirits 
And I've seen people whose bodies give out on them because they have not put the same investment in that aspect of their career, because I think it's tied together as they did with the intellectual part. So that's my own personal approach in coming at this. It involves diet and exercise and all the other good stuff, but that to me is not enough. Something you're so passionate about, you actually forget all the other crap in your life that's going on uh, that you know keeps you up at night. I'm about to share this because mine, mine is because my knees have given out with basketball, so mine's become golf, and uh, there's a lot of stereotypes around it. But to your point, it fits all the things you just described. So my wife and I may need to uh, listen to this one portion of uh, this talk today. Um, <laughs> I know your time is so precious. Uh, intellect, keep it sharp. Who are you reading? What do you read? Do you have like a daily regimen of things that you look at? Do you have some authors that you really find fascinating right now? So I, I am, uh, you know, Hillbilly Elegy to me is, is a, uh, a story about poverty that if folks haven't focused on it, I think they should. Uh, why? Because so much of the dysfunction of poverty we think about in black and brown places, and there's huge swath. If folks wanna understand why so many places that they call flyover America feel so disconnected from the rest of the country, uh, I think that's one of the books that it's worth it to just sort of think about and contemplate. Now, I've been a little concerned about the author who I was really uh, following because uh, he seems to have uh, now become, wanted to become a politician, which is his right to, to do. Uh, uh, the uh, work, Angela Duckworth's work around grit yep. is something that I think people really need to pay attention to. Uh, and I, I think that's really important. Uh, but for me, I uh, read uh, three newspapers every day. Uh, I read Daily News because I get local. I read the New York Times, uh, four. I read the Washington Post, and I read the Wall Street Journal. Simply because each one of them has a different editorial spin or a different focus, and all of it represents America. And so, my wife knows, or oh, he's down there consuming his papers. That's what's going on. But uh, I, I have, I have become increasingly concerned that you can find a place that supports your own biased thinking, which we all have, 24 hours a day. And the more we tune into those places, the more I think we lose touch with the rest of Americans. So we can't contemplate why anybody would feel the way they do, which drives us, I think, further apart uh, in thinking about this. And so, uh, because so much of my own the work we do at the zone is with, you know, my board member, they have Republicans, they have Democrats, they have folks from all over trying to really understand uh, and make sense out of this is something that uh, I, I have spent uh, a lot of time focused on. That's really helpful because I think to do the work well, if you're Republican and Democrat in our country, it uh, doesn't matter. We need to solve the problem. And so we, we need to solve the problem. Everybody's coming at. Uh, one quick question before I ask our final one. I'm interviewing a gentleman actually in New York City the other day who I hope chooses to work with us because he is an incredible young man. Uh, 
And I just happened to tell him, I'm like, you know, I get a chance to talk to Jeffrey Cannon this week. It's great. What would you ask him? Because he was just so engaging to talk to. And he goes, you know what? I want to know what is he listening to? What's on his playlist? So I don't know if you're like Obama who has like his curated playlist. And we made some jokes about what that could look like. Do you listen to music? And if so, what, what's kind of your go-to either artists or songs right now that like really take you into a different place? So, so I have one of the most sort of eclectic uh, music uh, sort of appreciations. And somebody asked if I would give them my playlist. And then I told them, no, you're going to know too much about me uh, because uh, there, there are people on my playlist that if you weren't through the generations with me, both white and black, uh, there, there are groups that I loved, uh, when it, and it runs from the, the Beatles to the Rolling Stones to groups like Traffic that most people haven't even heard about uh, when I was in college, or Three Dog Night, which none of my Black friends even know who they were. That was, I loved their, their stuff. Uh, but mostly my stuff is soul, uh, rhythm and blues. Uh, I, uh, that's how my wife and I met. Uh, I'm older than she is. And I was listening to music one day and she said, what do you listen to? And I said, you'd never understand this. This is like back in the day. She knew all the songs. I was like, oh, I think I love this woman. How could she know those songs? Uh, so that's, that's mostly where I am. I have, uh, you know, I have my own rap part of, of when New York was the rap scene in New York before it became kind of gangster rap. With yep. Biggie and some of the others, Tupac and others, uh, when you know it was Rakim who grew up uh, in the same town, little town out in Long Island, Wine Dance, where I graduated high school from. Uh, you know, the, the, when Jay Z and you know uh, there there were a bunch of artists then Nas and others that whose music I listened to, they lost me when they got really hardcore. Some of the other stuff, uh, so you'd see some of that uh, on my, and then you'd have folks. No one's ever heard of a howling wolf that's from my mother's generation, who was like a blues player. So uh, music is a central part of my life. Yes. But anybody listening to my playlist would be like, why would he put that song after that song? They have nothing, they're like 50 years separating those folks. But that's that's who I that's who I listen to. Yeah, my wife can't listen to my playlist because they just put them on random. And she's like, why is why do we have rap and country and some sort of metal? Then they just can't can't keep up with it. So uh, I just thought it was a really astute question that I've not as much as I love music. I've never thought to ask it. And so I just want to give uh, Bentley a shout out for coming. I'm, up but I'm a, I'm, it is, it's not a day that goes by that I don't listen to uh, probably an hour's worth of music, but not but never on the radio. Right. My, my youngest son might, enter, but no, whatever's new right now, I won't know anything about, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, I, Little Nas X, everybody told me I had to see his video about the country music stuff, stuff and then he changed up on me real fast. So real fast. I, I'll, I'll catch some of that sometimes because my, my, uh, my wife and I, our youngest son is 23. He'll be like, oh, dad, you got to watch this. But basically, <laughs> I don't listen to the radio. I got my playlist. That's what I'm listening to. It's all like, you know, even even my modern stuff is 15 years old uh, in terms of the rap music and other stuff I'm listening to. Well, uh, I I'm the same way. Just so you know, I don't listen to a lot of, uh, on the radio. Uh, last question. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Just as you think about your heart right now and what you're going through, or some advice you've received, what's the best piece of advice you have for a leader? 
in education right now? Uh, my, my, my best advice, this is going to seem funny. My best advice is don't follow yourself online. Uh, don't give, don't give everybody an opinion about what it is that you're doing and actually read and feel like you have to respond to that. The toxicity out there, I don't care what you do today. If you just decided today, hey Jeff, I wanna give like a thousand dollars to a homeless person, there would be 10,000 people who would be calling you all kinds of racist and other things because you're, and if you read that stuff, it undermines, I think, your, your will, your commitment. Uh, it wears people down uh, and it's too much. Uh, so uh, I, I, this is the reason I'm like this is, so right in the middle when, when I was working full time here, all the internet stuff came on, my communications person would come in every day with a list of things about the Harlem Children's Zone for me to be. I'd be reading that list, then I'd start reading stuff about myself. I spend all day thinking about what somebody and the boys, you know, they, what are you talking about? Why would you say that about me? You don't even know me. And then I'm like, but I don't even know this, but I don't even care about this. It's so easy now to get pulled into these wars uh, that drains, in my opinion, your energy, your focus, your time that sometimes you think you're winning if folks online tell you you're winning yep. and not that you're actually delivering for children and, and, and families. And so I, I would tell them, uh, limit your, uh, I think, uh, sort of measurement of what you're doing by what people are writing, because the more you're doing that's gonna change the system, the more negative stuff is going to be written about you. It's just the world we live in. You do something great. The people who thought you giving that $10,000 was good, you're going to be like, oh, that was great. But they're not going to write you about it. Yeah. It's going to be the other folks who are going to write about it and tell you what a horrible person you are. And so that to me is, is part of the challenge because what I've seen is over my career, I've watched many good people get run out of education. Uh, just from the constant scrutiny you're under. So uh, spend the time developing your own internal strength uh, to be able to go and do this. And the other thing I'm going to tell folks, you got to have a sense of humor. I mean, for real, people think I'm saying that as a joke. I'm not saying that as a joke. You've got to have a sense of humor. You got to realize you know, the, the folks I know who've been in the charter school movement, the attacks that have happened, the horrible things people say. I'm like, if you start taking that stuff seriously, you're going to just get out the business. Uh, have a sense of humor. Don't even take yourself so seriously. Uh, and it will allow you to allow a lot of this stuff to roll off your back as you're focused on the work. Well, Jeffrey, this has been an awesome little more than an hour. So I apologize if I made you late for your next meeting, but all good. Uh, I have been looking forward to this day for so long. And like I said, I just appreciate you making time and continuing to, to be in the fight. Thank you for encouraging us to stay in the fight and to continue to follow your, your example. Thanks, Dustin. It's been, it's been a blast, as you could probably tell. Oh, this has been awesome. I appreciate you so much. Have a great day. Thank you also now. Bye now. Please support us by subscribing to our YouTube channel, uh, podcast on Apple or Spotify, and 
Help us celebrate the beautiful, messy work of shaping human potential.